0: I'm so aware that in the heart of this retreat, there's just a certain quality of presence. There's the availability of mystery. Um, Things are opening in the seen and the unseen. There's room for the unusual and the amazing and for things to happen that aren't... that don't fall under our conditioned expectations. And I love that. And I also know that for myself, sometimes that can be quite intense. I'm sure it's sometimes quite intense for you. And so in that spirit, I actually want to, in this reflection, invite us into a story that is very much carries those qualities of mystery, of presence, of the seen and the unseen, of being open to the unexpected. And that story, historically and archetypally, is the story of the Buddha, But I would also really invite us to be on the lookout for the archetypal themes in this story that we can really land with as part of our own story. Part of our own unfolding, actually, that has nothing to do with the story. So we'll see. And we've been weaving the Buddhist story, of course, uh, throughout this retreat. And so I want to start out at a place that is uh, sometimes skimmed over or left out because I'm interested in what we tend to skim over and leave out. It's just a tendency of mind I have. And it's actually the period of time directly after the Buddha became fully enlightened and transformed into the actual Buddha that he was, you know, from Siddhartha to the Buddha, really. And so what happened in those weeks right after full awakening fascinates me. What happened? The fr- And the entire story of the weeks after his awakening all happened underneath trees. And I've been listening to some of you in our check-ins and And there are definitely a small group of you that are taking refuge under the trees on this land. You're going out in the woods, you're going up on the hill, you're sitting under the trees. That is a tradition that is much larger than Buddhism that's been going on for a very, very long time. And it's very much part of our forest traditions from Thailand and Burma and other places even if you haven't been going out in the forest. Fortunately, the forest is included around this hall. We're actually sitting right here under the trees. And so after the Buddha became enlightened, he sat under the bow tree, the Bodhi tree, where he became enlightened for, as it is put in the suttas, seven days in one session. You think doing a morning of continuity of practice is uh, a lot? How about seven days in one session? And it is said he was feeling the bliss of deliverance, the bliss of freedom. He sat and drank it in. That's such an invitation to us. When we have a little insight, when we've been in a cycle of a lot of difficulty, and all of a sudden the space comes in and we feel more free, can we take that moment? Maybe not seven days in one session, but that moment... To sit in the bliss of the cessation of that difficulty, the deliverance. So he did that. And then he got up and wandered over to yet another tree. And this tree was a banyan tree. And he sat under that tree for seven days. Then he got up and moved to yet another tree. And he spent seven days at the root root of the Makalinda tree. And during the time that he sat under that tree, a great storm arose. A huge, huge storm with tremendous winds and tremendous rains. And there he was, sitting under that tree, feeling the bliss of freedom. And what happened? Something unexpected. Some of you know this story. Uh, A being that we can call sort of part of the uh, seen and unseen world called a naga serpent actually came up from out of a nearby body of water. And this serpent, in terms of if we were going to visualize it with our worldly eyes, looked a bit like a cobra. You know, and so you might think, ooh, scary, right? There's certain things that arise for us that there's this automatic response of, is this okay? Scary. This serpent was manifesting as benevolent. And so the serpent actually moved itself up, unfurled its wings, as it were, and protected the Buddha from wind and rain with kindness for seven days under that tree until the storm abated. And it's like, oh, we don't need to visualize a serpent. But when the storms come, can we actually call up over us this sense of protection and benevolence? And so at the end of the seven days, the Buddha um, got up and went to the root of yet another tree. And at this tree, it was said that the first two people visited the Buddha. And they visited and they brought him some food offerings, which, you know, is a good thing. It had been a while, perhaps, since he had eaten. And they offered him food. He accepted the food. And they saw something in him. Without having a big, long, heady conversation, they saw something. The way that we sometimes see something in someone that we meet, There's something about them. And they said, may we become your followers? And the Buddha said, yes, friends, you may become my followers. He then got up and went to sit below the same banyan tree that he sat before for another seven days. And during this whole time, he was reflecting on a few things. He was reflecting on some of the maps that he was, had discovered about how we get caught and how we get free. For example, dependent origination and transcendental dependent origination. He was reflecting on the five spiritual faculties. He was reflecting on the four foundations of mindfulness. And as he was doing that, he had an insight. And the insight is often shared in brief form, but I want to share it directly from the sutta. And, you know, basically, this was told by the Buddha to others. Ananda, his cousin, remembered it. It was shared at the first council of elders after his death. It was passed on in an oral tradition for hundreds of years until it was written down on palm leaves. And we have it now. So this is what he said. This dhamma that I have attained is profound and hard to see, hard to discover. It is the most peaceful and superior goal of all. But this generation, I see, relies on attachment, relishes attachment, delights in attachment. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth. That is to say, specifically, conditionality, dependent arising. And it is hard to see this truth. That is to say, the stilling of formations, the fading of lust, cessation, nibbana. And if I taught the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and it would be wearying and troublesome for me. That was what he thought, you know, in closer to his own words. And then, of course, what happened was an unseen being came and visited him and said, Please, please, friend. Share the truth as you understand it. There are those who have little dust in their eyes. There are those who might be able to understand. Please give it a try. And he felt inspired and agreed. And his first inspiration was to go back and teach the two teachers who had supported him so much in his training. But with his um, level of clairvoyance of mind, he realized that they had passed away during the rest of his journey. And so he decided to go visit his five friends, where they had all practiced very, very seriously, strictly, and austerely together. And he decided to go visit them. So he was in Bogaya, India, and they were in Saranoff, in Barnares. That was a 160-mile walk, on foot, probably barefoot. And so he went, and he made that walk, and he wandered by stages, it was said. And when he got to Saranath, or Benares, in the Deer Park, where the bhikkhus of the group of five were, and they saw him coming in the distance, and they agreed amongst themselves, friends, here comes monk Gotama, who has become self-indulgent. He gave up the struggle and reverted to luxury. We ought not pay homage to him or rise up for him or receive his bowl or outer robe. Still, a seat can be prepared. Let him sit down if he likes. But as soon as the Buddha actually approached them, they found themselves unable to keep their pact. One went to meet him and took his bowl and outer robe. Another prepared a seat. Another set out food, a footstool and a towel. The Buddha sat down on the seat, prepared and washed his feet. And they addressed him as friend. It's like, how many times in our lives have we made assumptions about somebody else or had somebody make assumptions about us? They're like this, I'm going to treat them like this. And then those amazing times when all of a sudden all of our beliefs, everything that we hold true about someone or someone else holds about us, just fall away. And we realize inaccurate perception and there's that moment of connection. It's profound. And so the Buddha gave his first teaching, his first formal teaching, the the set rolling of the wheel of the Dhamma. And what he said was this, My friends, there are these two extremes that ought to be avoided by one who's gone forth in the spiritual life. What to? There's the devotion to pursuit of pleasure and sense desires. There's devotion to self-mortification. The middle way discovered by me avoids both of these extremes. And it gives vision, it gives knowledge and it leads to peace, it leads to enlightenment, it leads to Nibbana. And then he unfurled the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, and said, this is the path, friends, this is the path. So, what I want to reflect on uh, in a more nuanced way at this point in the retreat is this teaching of the Four Noble Truths that he taught in the Turning of the Wheel of the Dhamma, Mary Grace offered the introductory teaching to this a couple of weeks ago. really want to look at this from the perspective of how we're experiencing it directly as we move deeper and deeper in our practice. So this word dukkha. Uh, do means difficult and ka means empty. And what it specifically refers to is actually a metaphor. It's the metaphor of a wheel of a cart and the axle of the wheel of the cart. And the wheel of that cart is empty. And if the axle is a little bit off, then it's dukkha. It's a little bit out of alignment. It doesn't feel quite right. It doesn't roll quite right. So the modern day example that I give of this is that the definition of dukkha is the definition of a wonky shopping cart wheel. So, <laughs> everyone here probably experienced, if not a wonky shopping cart wheel, some wonky wheel. And I really got this one year. Um, these last number of years, I've transitioned from this retreat here at Spirit Rock to doing a number of years of a month or more of self retreat. And one year, The only year I did this, I kind of learned my lesson and decided that it might be interesting integrative practice if halfway through my month of self-retreat, I went into town and replenished supplies. I don't recommend this. Please stay here. You have so much support. I haven't chosen to do it again, but the one thing that was great in terms of a teaching in doing that was that I got an incredibly wonky wheel shopping cart. As soon as I pulled it out, and I was so quiet and so present, and it's just ta-tunk, 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 and it's veering to the right, and I'm trying to make it veer to the left, and it's veering to the, and I got it immediately. I I just started giggling. I was like, dukkha. This is actually what it feels like to be struggling with dukkha. The wonky shopping cartwheel. And so we're going to look at that second noble truth of the struggle with the wonky shopping cartwheel in our practice in our lives. So, again, the words of the Buddha, and this is from Joseph Goldstein's new book, Mindfulness, uh, and really the, the first noble truth and the noble truths falling under the heading of the Dhammas, the, four, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Again, friends, in regard to the Dhammas, one abides contemplating Dhammas in terms of the four noble truths. And how does one, in regard to the Dhammas, abide contemplating Dhammas in terms of the four noble truths? Here one knows, as it really is, this is dukkha. One knows, as it really is, this is the arising of dukkha. One knows, as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. One knows, as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So that the way that I talk about the Four Noble Truths that's very kind of accessible language compared to some of the more archaic language uh, is this. It isn't easy being a human being living a life. The first noble truth. The basic cause of our disease is struggle or craving. Second noble truth. Peace is possible. Third noble truth. There is a way, a path, there are tools to this peace fourth noble truth. That's just how I word it. I think that it's really important for many of us to actually find our own language so that when we are moving around they are the words that sing to us the truth of what we already have understood so that we can name it. Ah, the second noble truth is in the foreground just now. It is being known. Another definition I really like from Stephen Batchelor goes like this. First truth, fully knowing suffering. Second truth, letting go of craving. Third, experiencing cessation of craving. Fourth, cultivating the Eightfold Path. So within the Four Noble Truths there are actually twelve insights. And with each of the Four Noble Truths we'll just talk about the three kind of basic pieces the first insight for each of the truths is that we reflect. That doesn't mean that we're trying to figure it out or that we're over-conceptualizing it, but there is a value to reflecting over and over on these qualities, on these truths, uh, so that they are brought to mind. What we bring to mind tends to lead. So that's a really different thing to bring to mind than the struggle that's been going on for the last 24 hours with whatever object. It's a different quality. Second insight for each truth is directly experiencing the truth. Each one, over and over again. And the third insight for each truth, and um, this comes actually from Ajahn sumedho is knowing what we know. You know what you you know. please, please, Give yourself the gift of knowing what you know. I know there's so much more that each of us can know. This practice is for the rest of our lives. But we can also celebrate what we do know and what has been understood. It matters. So you can track these three. You can track them during this reflection. You can track them the whole retreat. You can track them your whole life, if you like. So, first noble truth. And I learned a lot of these things, as I think I've mentioned before, in chants um, from some of the monastics I trained with. And so I just wanted to kind of share this first noble truth in the form of the chant from the Western Thai Forest tradition. And it goes like this. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Grief, lamentation, pain, sorrow, and despair are dukkha. Association with the disliked is dukkha. Separation from the liked is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are dukkha. So there we have it. That's a lot of dukkha. So it's nice to have a beautiful little tune, and that's why I learned it that way, because there was something soothing, actually, in hearing it, just like, it, it, you know. Okay, so here's what I hear underneath that. It is like this, it is like this, it is like this, it is like this. It's just like the suchness of it, the fullness of it, the allowing of it. And then there's the particulars of it. So mindfulness of these three types of suffering or disease. First noble truth. And the first thing I want to name is that at this point in a retreat like this, we're really moving down into the energetic qualities of all of this, the energetic qualities of our disease, of our unsatisfactoriness, of the suffering, and also of the release. And so to really name that there's this unseen dynamic going on about a balance of energy and awareness that each one of us is doing a dance with, this balance of energy and awareness. And what we can start to notice is the times when the awareness isn't strong enough, it isn't balanced with the energetic, what starts to happen is then the energy begins to move into available habit patterns. It begins to move into habitual habit patterns. And so to talk about some of these really fundamental habitual habit patterns that rise and come to the foreground to be known when there isn't quite a balance of this energy and awareness but you notice they come to the foreground and then they can be known and then the whole thing can rebalance again everything is a doorway into awakening so first we'll talk about the um, dukkha dukkha that Mary Grace mentioned and I love that term too, it's just dukkha dukkha what kind of dukkha? dukkha dukkha So physical, mental pain. And I'm going to recap a little bit from some of the first foundation of mindfulness practices because they fit in here, practices with the body. So when we have a physical pain that is in the foreground, not so much the, just kind of the unsatisfactoriness of having a body. We'll get to that. That's more Sankara dukkha. But um, just... It's painful being in this body sometimes, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And so a reminder, and so many of you have been practicing with this so beautifully, but again, part of the key of mindfulness is just remembering to remember. So a little reminder that when there's a physical pain, we don't need to drown in it. You know, it's not as if, if I just stay with it forever and it's a level 10, then like somehow I get bonus points. That's not how it works. You know, we get exhausted is how that works. And so we can say that less is more. We can move back and forth and say, I'm going to take three breaths with this form of bodily dukkha, and then I can take a whole bunch more breaths with a place in the body that is not in pain, that has ease, and we can pendulate back and forth. On the mental level of this dukkha dukkha, Um, there's this practice that I call shifting the center of gravity. Because when we're in mental dis-ease, uh-oh, on the mental level, on the mind level, um, it's really easy to fall into a pit of that uh uh-oh. The body goes uh uh-oh and we get, we drowned in that. The mind goes uh uh-oh, we can drown in that. Or we can shift the center of gravity and apply an antidote. So this really ties in with the bear story that Donald told, where you know sometimes it's very wise to just, in the case of the, the non-existent bear that he was afraid of, be, just be with the fear and breathe with the fear. Other times, it's better, <laughs> he's smirking, to apply an antidote and shift the center of gravity into something like metta or compassion, And this is wise effort. And the art of meditation is that only we can know whether shifting the center of gravity is suppression or wise effort. So we get wiser and wiser. How do we do that? By making mistakes and learning. So then we have the second form of dukkha, which is uh, the, the difficulty of change. So it's called anicca dukkha. And this can happen both on a kind of obvious level and a very kind of what I might call a spiritual level. Sometimes it's called the worldly level or the unworldly level, but those words might not be so resonant for some of us. So I'm going to read a little bit about this from Philip Moffat's book Dancing with Life, A Four Noble Truths. Great resource. The never-ending arising and passing of pleasant and unpleasant moments is so pervasive that it is easy to get habituated to it that you don't notice the stress and dissatisfaction it evokes in your mind. Therefore, you may experience this dukkha only as underlying anxiety. No. It's just coming and going and coming and going. And I got to be with the coming and going and pleasant and pleasant again. And the whole thing just starts to get a little bit frustrating and a little bit overwhelming. And what we notice in the foreground is this kind of underlying anxiety. I actually think this underlying anxiety is one of the um, areas of dis-ease in our culture right now. And, And actually increasingly in the global culture So how do we work with this feeling of dis-ease, of unsatisfactoriness, of underlying anxiety in our practice? Again, a refresher that when anxiety is coming up, and this is a more subtle level of anxiety than the gross kind of, I'm freaking out right now. We experience that too. This is more of an underlying. But again, the tools of anxiety moves up And so we can take that moment to ground and feel our seat and feel our feet and put our right hand on the earth as Siddhartha did in his moment of truth. The earth is my witness. All of these start to rebalance this underlying anxiety. And I also want to acknowledge that for some of us as insight progresses, there are also these waves of underlying anxiety In the progression of insight itself as we're tracking so intimately each little change and it just starts to feel really burdensome and even overwhelming at times. So we need these basic tools to work with that so that we don't get caught in a struggle and that progression of insight can continue. So thirdly we have the um, difficulty of The sankharas, right? The difficulty of who we take ourselves to be. And so I'll share a little bit from Philip about this one. Sankara dukkha is really, it's just the dukkha of the aggregates. It's the, it's the dukkha of, as Mary Grace put it, being a formation of helicopter parts moving through space. So Philip says, the, composi- the compositional nature of life can result in even the most pleasant moments having subtle undertones of oppressiveness, an unexplained feeling that existence itself is burdensome. For instance, you may have had moments when you felt fatigue at having to brush your teeth one more time, or having to eat one more time, or of doing something that is ordinarily one of your favorite activities. So to me, this is the great invitation of mindfulness, because while we've all experienced this, just kind of like oppressiveness of, "I just have to incarnate as me into another moment again. Wouldn't it be nice to just relax a little bit of that inner bracing of having to present as me on the planet? Just a little bit. Um, but the invitation of mindfulness is actually through that very same thing. All of these things come alive. We can actually move into the experience of self as self-being, as a verb that's alive, spontaneous, vibrant, full. And the brushing of our teeth becomes amazing, as we know through the invitation of mindfulness. So the very things that when the mindfulness isn't strong enough start to feel oppressive can actually be invitations into a fullness of life, a fullness of awakeness. Pretty cool, huh? Not bad. So tying back with the Satipatthana Sukha, we can really experience this dukkha internally, externally or both. And the way that I look at it is here in retreat, we're mainly focusing on the internal process. And we're gathering our tools, we're gathering our reserves, we're allowing wisdom to come to the foreground so that we can meet the incredible suffering of the world. The suffering of the racism, the misunderstandings um, around identities that we have, the environmental destruction that so many of you are sharing, is like you're feeling the pain of the world. So we need to do these practices so that we can fully open to that and be wise with the dukkha that is systemic. Not just internal, but external. Uh, This is from one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Gina Sharp. We understand the transformation of our world begins with the turning of each individual heart towards freedom. We see that true social change begins with the wise heart that chooses generosity and love rather than the self-centeredness and ill will. Through the strength of love married to the power of wisdom, the appropriate response to our situation appears. So then we have the second noble truth. And the second noble truth is actually to be um, released or abandoned. Yeah. But even the word abandoned can be problematic, right? Because some of us have histories where our connection with that word is incredibly painful. So we need to find the language that speaks to us. Maybe the craving, the struggle needs to be released, maybe it needs to be transformed, maybe it needs to be abandoned. You know, it's finding the language actually speaks to our direct experience. So Donald talked about this a few nights ago in terms of the two arrows. You know, we have a basic garden variety difficulty of living a life and then we have the second arrow which is the struggle with that. I remember one year I had one of those calendars on my refrigerator where you tear off every day and there's a different kind of spiritual quote Interestingly enough, if my memory serves me correctly, it was around March 10th, and we're close enough to March 10th, and I tore off March 9th, and there was March 10th, and it said this, Pain is a guarantee. Suffering is optional. That's it. That's it. Pain is a guarantee. Suffering is optional. Sometimes due to causes and conditions, suffering is just going to happen until it passes away out of its own life cycle. So it's not as if pain is a guarantee, suffering is optional, and if I'm suffering, I'm doing something wrong. It means we've had our foot on the gas pedal of that suffering for so long that even when we start to take it off, the car's still rolling. That's all. So mindfulness of the three types of craving, the second noble truth. Firstly, kamatangha, Tang means craving. Kama means at the sense doors. So in Joseph Goldstein's book, he talks about when we have a sense door contact, how quickly it moves from a sight, a sound, a smell, a thought, etc., into these three things. So there's a contact. There it is. I want, I need, I have. Contact, I want, I need, I have. Contact, I want, I need, I must have. And that's how it goes in our conditioning. So he also talked about how the Buddha spoke about nine things rooted in craving that lead to suffering. So let's see what the nine are. They are Pursuit, acquisition, decisions, desire and lust, selfish tenacity, possessiveness, artifice, concern for protection, and quarrels, strife, dissension, offensive talk, slander, and lies. The nine things. So he also says we can see how craving gives rise to these things on both a personal level and a national level thus seeing how craving leads directly to different kinds of suffering. So I want to acknowledge that a few of these nine things are really rooted in deep caring for the survival of our being, like concern for our protection. Right? So we can go back to the root of deep caring and see how when we overdo it, it actually leads to struggle. But it's not as if we don't want to protect ourselves. Right? So we need to be nuanced with these teachings, and make them real for us. So, with the sense doors and the craving at the sense doors, here's a possible practice. It kind of ties in with something Mary Grace said the other night around the five aggregates. I've done this a lot, I found it really interesting. I'll choose one sense door for a short period of time. I'll notice the contact at the sense door, I'll notice the pleasant and pleasant or neutral. If it's possible to just relax into the direct experience of those Vedanas, I'll do that. If it's already moving into, (laughs) I want, I need, I must have, I'll just notice, is there liking or disliking here? And just, again, relax into what does that feel like and allow it to stop there. Allow the car to slow and stop and not perpetuate into the next thing. And so it's a way of working with actually the change at the sense doors, acknowledging that there is craving, there is habituation, but that that can be relaxed, paused, released. So then we have the craving around becoming, bhava tangha. And really this is about noticing when our sense of okayness is dependent on being Someone. And around here, it looks a little bit different sometimes than it might look in our daily lives. So here's a few that I came up with. I'm sure you can come up with your own. Uh, becoming someone, being someone here, our identities in this moment. How about the identity of being the slowest walker? The quietest moving around retreatant in the center. Right? The stillest sitter one that was really interesting for me in my early years of practice was the most emotive retreatant. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Those of you that sat with me in the early years, now you might all of a sudden remember me. (laughs) And it's so interesting how these cravings around becoming and manifesting someone and how we get caught are ridiculously conditioned. I come from a long line of women who are highly emotive, (laughs) very emotional. And I really thought when I first started sitting long retreats that if something happened, the appropriate response was to have a dramatic response because that was how I was taught how to be a human being living a life. So if there was a big difficulty, there was a huge cry. And if some, there was some amazing insight, it was the most amazing thing that ever happened. And I just thought that that was how you're supposed to be retreatant. Until I started looking around and orienting and going, everybody else isn't doing this. Oh, okay. Now conditioning. Humility again. Humility again. So you've got your own. Uh, this, the becoming also falls under planning mind, the mind that plans, making me into someone in the future. And a lot of you have been checking in about the fact that the somebody that you're making yourself into in the future, that you're creating a future, has also something to do with creating a future in which you are okay. No. So it's really acknowledging the deep caring that's producing that habit pattern. Of course we want to be okay. And then the impermanence part, it's like, ooh, this doesn't feel so comfortable, so I'm going to create myself into someone that's going to be okay in the next moment or tomorrow or next week. Just acknowledge the caring that's producing that and then relax around that. And we can use this gentle mental note, not now, it's not happening now, it's not about now. So the Buddha also talked about one fortunate attachment, and I thought I would share that with you. Let a person, let not a person revive the past, or on the future build one's hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let one see each presently arisen state. Let one know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. One who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by night and by day, it is this one, the peaceful sage has said, has one fortunate attachment. So the one fortunate attachment is not reviving the past and not hoping to be in the future. So you get one. Is that good news? I hope it's good news. So then we have the non-becoming. The third craving, the we bhava tangha, the desire to not be. And, you know, as I'm finishing this up, you can also notice some of us have kind of we all experience all of them, but sometimes one of them is more predominant or visits more often. For me, it's this one, this desire to not be. It's been that way my whole life, kind of my predominant craving habit pattern of conditioning. So examples, I'd rather not be the person in this situation. Or this is unpleasant. I wish it would not be. Or, you know, I just can't stand it. Like I don't want to be anymore. I just don't want to be. So, To acknowledge that actually the extreme of this is not wanting to be alive on the planet anymore. And if that craving moves to that extreme, that is a time to seek support. Because it can really, really destabilize our being in an unhealthy way. The craving has gone to extreme. I actually wish that, you know, I don't want to be alive. So we need support. And also that this sometimes comes up. Both. And it depends on our histories and what we're working with. That dynamic. But it is important to check in. So really what this is falling under in its kind of more standardized range is unworldly, unpleasant feeling tone. So it's it's the feeling tone that's unpleasant that has everything to do with, in our retreat life, kind of the progression of the spiritual path. We also experience it in just a daily life way, in our daily lives, but a lot of times here it's actually the unworldly, unpleasant Vedana. And so this can tie in with the dark night of the soul, as it's called. It can tie in with some of the states as we're deepening and deepening into our insight. And everything just feels more and more oppressive and dark. And there's just this feeling that we just literally want to, like, pack it up and leave. Because we can't stand it anymore. And, you know, again, that's when we need to check in with a teacher. So when we need to get support. But it's part of the practice path, you know? We don't all visit it and we're not all there all the time. But to acknowledge, it happens sometimes. So I'll share with you a story about a nun from the time of the Buddha. And this nun, uh, her name was Sama. And before she became a nun, she experienced a tragedy. And the tragedy was the murder of her friend. Uh, And the murder of her friend happened because they were actually... Um, It was kind of a love triangle, let's put it that way. And it ended in violence. It was, of course, incredibly traumatic for her and totally disturbed her mind. So she became a nun later and went through 25 years of difficult practice. The Buddha at that point gave her some more teachings and... Through reapplying mindfulness in all those years of practice, her mind was freed, right? But she went through a profound dark night of the soul, you know? And and even feeling like, I just, I don't want to be, I don't want to be. It's too hard. Here's her enlightenment poem. It was 25 years since I turned away from home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. I had no peace because I didn't know my own mind. Then, suddenly, I was shaken with dread, remembering the words of the Buddha. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. I have finished with craving. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It is the seventh day since my craving died. Fierce, huh? Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert because it isn't easy being a human being, living a life, we love to be alert. And so we can face it, and we can work with it, and we can move through it, and it too passes. So then the third noble truth, which is to be realized. Now this, friends, is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha. The remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release and letting go of that very craving. This noble truth must be penetrated by realizing the cessation of dukkha. This noble truth has been penetrated by realizing the cessation of dukkha. Peace is possible. From the Majjhima this is peace. This is exquisite. The stilling of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. So talk a little bit about the cessation of the dukkha, of the suffering. Please be on the lookout for cessation. Not just on the lookout for the hindrances that still burp their way up from time to time. How about when they're not present? And the craving, it comes up and it's so strong and then it starts to cease and we can be with the entire slide of, you know, ending, ending, ending. Where is that moment? It's so sweet. Please don't miss it. So one expression of this is the expression of not shooting the second arrow. We've got a pain in the body. The anger comes again. And we don't fight with it. We don't struggle with it. We allow things to arise and pass away without interference. And there's actually peace and spaciousness that you've been sharing in your check-ins within something that's very difficult. I love that because the invitation of the Four Noble Truths is not that we get some happy ending and that we get to walk away into the sunset, you know, with a never hurt again body and the world perfectly manifesting the way that we want it and all of our you know broken structures suddenly mended. It's that we have the same bodies, we have the same family of origin, we have the same work in the world, we have the same beautiful and difficult planet. And there's peace. There's space. And the appropriate response arises from that. Ajahn Sumedho puts it like this. Letting go is leaving things as they are. It does not mean you annihilate them or throw them away. If we contemplate desires and listen to them, listen to them. We are no longer attaching to them. So there's this invitation into deep listening with the very desires themselves. So there's an analogy that goes with this. It's the analogy of holding something in your hand and something that has a genuine use, right? So I just thought, oh, this would be useful. This is the inviter of the bell. And the inviter of the bell, if I hold on to it especially a little higher for a little while, it's going to get heavy, right? It's going to become burdensome. It's a useful tool, but now it's starting to get heavy. And so I don't throw it across the hall. I promise I won't. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm simply putting it down. And there's this releasing of the grip of it. And there's the holding of the open hand. That's what we're doing over and over. It's arising. And we hold it and go, oh, this is heavy. Useful. Our sense of self is useful. But now it's gotten heavy. It's not relaxed and spacious. It's gotten fixed. It's gotten solid and separate. It's moving in that cycle. Oh, can I start to put it down? Relax it, open it, allow it to be free and fluid and known. And just put it down. But, still useful. Still pick it up, you know? But if I have to hold this for the next ten years and not put it down, that's going to (laughs) hurt. It's Buddhist muscle building. So... Let's see here, Ajahn Dasa has a beautiful teaching about releasing the manifest habit in the moment. And it's a familiar one but it often gets shared in a really truncated way so I wanted to share a little bit more of this teaching. So teaching of n- Nibbana for everyone. Everyone's welcome into Nibbana. He says, to see that there is no nirvana in the present time is absolutely wrong. Because nirvana, the nirvana condition is ever-present in nature. Anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and all night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Under that condition, living things would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of wholeness and ease. In fact, they last longer than the fires of our grasping and fear. It is this which sustains us. We have periods of rest making us refreshed, alive and well. Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? Why ever not? But I know there's a tremendous amount of gratitude in this hall. For that very quality, over and over and over again. Short moments re recognized. So that's talking about the manifest mind states under the third foundation of mindfulness in the moment, right? Then there's the roots. There's the manifestation in the roots. So with the roots, we're really starting to talk about some of the traditional stages of enlightenment themselves. And some of the first roots that actually have the potential for transformation and release are the roots of a solid, separate, fixed sense of self as a personality view. There's this transformation from very solid, fixed, this is me to actually having the personality as a tool that can be used as appropriate, but we're no longer lost about it, ever. Uh, Attachment to some of the rites and rituals of our cultures of origin. The attachment part, so that we can actually see clearly some of our cultural conditioning and some of the rites and rituals associated with that and be in wise relationship instead of not seeing, instead of it being invisible. And also doubt. The deep, deep doubt that are the teachings real? Is this, you know, did the Buddha know? know? The deep, deep layer of doubt those start to get transformed and released through this releasing of craving, the cessation of craving at a root level. So in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness, practicing cessation, realizing cessation, first foundation, we could practice it in the sense of the body as impermanent. We can notice that we're not in control of the body. Amazing, right? (laughs) We can let go of that. That ceases. We're not in charge. We can care about the body without all the extra attachment. Second foundation. We can track the feeling tone and actually allow it to pause and not grow into something more complex and more difficult from there. Just pleasant, unpleasant and neutral being known. Third foundation mind states. How about this? not taking them personally. And the fourth foundation, this practice of the Four Noble Truths, or any of the other teachings. Really noticing, which one's engaged right now? How am I working with it? So the fourth Noble Truth, the Noble Eightfold Path, is to be cultivated and we actually, so that there could really be a little bit more exploration with these first three truths, we made a decision um, to offer a whole another talk later in the retreat on the Noble Eightfold Path, the way that we develop our sense of basic integrity, uh, the meditation itself, and the wisening and wisening of our view and intentions so that this could have a little bit more nuance and that that could receive the respect that it deserves in our practice. So I'll share a brief teaching on the Fourth Noble Truth from Utajaniya, Burmese Master. We are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. In this moment we can hear The fact that we are aware we are hearing is right view. We can know that it's happening in the present moment. This is right view. This is nature. This is experience. Object is object. Experience is experience. If we have this attitude and we are aware of what's happening, this is right view and right intention. When we have right view and right intention, We can't speak wrongly, and we can't act wrongly, and we can't live wrongly. This is right speech, right action, right right livelihood. Being aware is right action. Then we have right effort, right awareness, and right concentration. This is the Noble Eightfold Path. So we are practicing our hearts out with that path. after the Buddha gave the teaching of turning the wheel of the Dhamma. Some, or really during the teaching, some amazing things happened. And one of the things that happened was that one of his five friends, uh, 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 Kandana, had an awakening. And he had an awakening where those first three roots that I was talking about completely transformed, released and were uprooted. And the Buddha said this, Kandanda knows! Kandana knows! And so, he acquired the name Anatta, <laughs> Anatta Kandana, who knows, right? And I just imagine the excitement of that moment. You know, the friends were like, I don't know who this guy thinks he is. Wait a second, something changed. We better make a seat. We better listen. And he gave this teaching, so simple, so profound, and one of them woke up. And there was this tremendous excitement in the air that actually led to some of the next two teachings that the Buddha gave in which all five of his friends became fully awakened in their very lives. These moments of awakening. And then from that process of the Buddha actually realizing, Oh, there really were a few with only a little dust in their eyes. This stuff really works, not just for for me, but for others. The lineage was then passed down from student to practitioner, or from teacher to practitioner, generation after generation after generation, until we get here, the United States of America. In 2015, and we're here from different countries, from different cultures, different languages, different ethnicities, all of our different backgrounds, our beautiful diversity, we have come here. We are exploring these practices together. We are waking up together. I find that so inspiring. It all started not with a wonky shopping cart wheel, but with another rolling of a wheel. It touches me. I hope it touches you. We're part of a living lineage. Whatever that means to us, we're part of a living lineage. And if it's supportive to actually feel our ancestors on the spiritual path, at our backs, at our sides, circling around us when we need them. Please use that. We're here in Sangha practicing together in community. But there's so much larger Sangha also supporting us worldwide in this time and from times past and in times future. So All of my blessings to you in your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.